Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How you doing, friend? Welcome to another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. For those of you who have checked in about my ongoing health issues, thanks so much. I really appreciate all of the concern and the comments. I'm feeling better than ever. Well, not than ever, but better than I have been, and that's saying a lot. I'm feeling fortunate. Let's put it that way. We are gearing up for Sinatra Week every single year around this time, the birthday of Frank Sinatra. I like to have interviews that are related to Frank Sinatra, the greatest singer who ever lived, in my opinion. And that brings us to Johnny Mandel. Johnny Mandel just celebrated his 93rd birthday. Happy birthday, Johnny Mandel, if you're listening to this. He is one of the greatest composers in American music. As you're going to hear in this interview, my appreciation and affection for his music is really evident. I just think he's incredible. It's like music is second nature to him. His whole life has been about musical achievement. From a professional standpoint, he's mastered composing, arranging, record producing, and more recently being a band leader. In the interview, he says that he learned a lot of the early principles of music as being a member of several big bands. As an arranger, Johnny Mandel worked with Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, Chet Baker, Peggy Lee, Andy Williams, all the greatest singers of those days. But you couldn't just limit Johnny Mandel's musical accomplishments to making records. He also did a lot of scores for motion pictures. He wrote some songs with some of the greatest lyricists like Johnny Mercer, Alan and Marilyn Bergman. There's a lot of songs that Johnny Mandel composed that are now known as standards. Emily, The Shadow of Your Smile, Close Enough for Love, Where Do You Start?, Oh yeah, and we can't forget the unforgettable melody of the MASH theme. You know that song, Suicide is Painless? You're going to get the sense from this interview, at least I did, that Johnny Mandel has never been motivated by fame or recognition. His work has always spoken for him. Some of his achievements include being inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, receiving several Grammy Awards, as well as Oscar and Emmy Awards, Some of the other artists who have used him as an arranger or producer would include Paul McCartney, Diana Krall, Natalie Cole, Willie Nelson, Barbara Streisand. I believe this interview with Johnny Mandel is a true musical artifact, a historical record. I was very honored to interview him, and I'm very honored that you're listening to the interview. Our special guest is a jazz musician, band leader, arranger, and composer, Oscar and Grammy award-winning inductee of the Songwriters Hall of Fame, Johnny Mandel. It's a great pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure for me, too, to be here. I think most stories are best from the beginning. If we could go back into your house when you were growing up, what would we hear in my house, when I was when I was growing up, which was in New York at the time, you would probably hear a lot of. I mean, this is in the 
late 20s and early 30s, you'd hear a lot of jazz music, but you'd also hear Rhapsody in Blue, the Gershwin recording of it quite a bit, that my mother would play incessantly. Things from shows that were popular in the 20s, you know, it was a great time of theater then. That kind of thing, probably. Very little classical music. What music did you love the most as a youth? Well, what do you mean by as a youth? I would say when you were around 10, 11. Oh, by then, I really loved big band jazz. It's by then, in 1935, let's see, I was born in 25, so I was about 10 years old. That was when Benny Goodman broke through, with, uh, and the nation was swing mad. And so what I heard was constantly all these bands coming from different places. I'm sure you've heard this kind of a story from a lot of guys my age, probably like Al Cohn or whoever. At night, you'd hear one band after another being broadcast from high up top the Hotel McAlpin or someplace in Chicago or whatever. That's what you'd hear as far as that kind of music. You're known for many things. Like I said at the introduction, arranging, there's many songs you've composed. Mm-hmm. What would you say your greatest ability in music is? I don't know. I'm still trying to find it. (laughs) It was always, when I was in the business, I always did what was required at that time, or tried to anyway. And I did a lot of things. I played in a lot of bands, first of all, because that's how you learn your craft. I was first a trumpet player and then a trombone player, and I played with a lot of name bands at the time. Alvina Ray, Jimmy Dorsey, Count Basie, a lot of different people. It was the greatest experience in the world. I spent a lot of years traveling on one-nighters and the bus and all that. That wasn't such a great experience, but it was part of being a musician at that time, right up until the end of World War II. Would you say you get equal joy out of all of the different things you have done, composing, arranging? Is it all equally enjoyable? Well, no. It depends on what you're doing. Usually, you're you're doing a given task at one time or another, unless I'm composing for a record date or something, or for a, a film score. And if I find an enjoyable job or an an enjoyable endeavor and it comes off, well, I would say that's very enjoyable. So much of it is a learning process as you go because you don't start off knowing how to do all these different things and you learn how to do them sometimes in a hurry because of all of a sudden you're in a job that requires this particular skill. That's kind of the way it is. What is the most important thing to do when you're arranging? What's the most important thing to keep in mind? Well, first of all, to hear what it's going to sound like in your head before you hear it played. That's the big thing. And you only learn that through doing it, learning how to put it on paper so it'll sound like you want it to and hope you do. And the early attempts on writing music and arranging, you're in for a lot of shocks at first, but You learn by hearing it and what you should have done as opposed to what you do, and then make sure that the next time you do it, do what you should have done. And it'll sound, when it first comes off and you hear it for the first time, it's very gratifying. I mean, when you hear it and it sounds like it did in your head, that kind of thing. Yeah. Because you hear it in your head first while you're doing it, or at least I'm speaking from personal. I was interested first in arranging rather than composing. 
I wanted to uh, know how to write for the different people in an, in an orchestra, the, all the saxophones, the trumpets, the trombones, piano, guitar, bass, drums, all that sort of thing. I didn't learn to write for strings and orchestras until later, but I was really interested first in writing big band music and luckily was able to write for a lot of them and travel with them too. And hearing your stuff played, you want to bring what you're hearing in your head as you're writing closer to what it's going to sound like when you hear it played. That's part of the whole educational process of writing music. When you're writing for, uh, you know, not just writing songs or something, but when you're arranging, because arranging was the first thing I was interested in. I wasn't interested in writing songs. I'd write songs as instrumentals to begin with because that was there was a record date that had to have that sort of thing. I'd write original pieces then for people to blow on. But it was always with, with jazz. I wasn't interested in writing symphonies or any of that stuff. Not at that time. You know, what happens when you start writing for films, you're going to run into all kinds of situations, including writing symphonic music. But that's a whole other thing. It came decades later, really. What was the first song you wrote that was recorded by another artist? Oh, God. Probably Emily, when I was into writing songs, because it was for a, a, a very good movie. And I had to, get a, had to get a lyricist. They said, who do you want? And I said, well, let's start at the top. And I got Johnny Mercer. There was no finer lyricist than that. And that was a very successful song. It would have undoubtedly won an Academy Award, but the rules up at the Academy that determined what, what songs were eligible for being picked as a song from a film were very strict at that time. And they loosened up a lot later. And, well, I won't go into all that, but it would have won at that time. I won for the next year for the shadow of your smile. But I didn't want to write music so I could win an Academy Award, for God's sakes. Yeah. That wasn't what it was all about at all. On the note of Emily, what are your recollections of composing that? Julie Andrews was the central character. She was Emily. And I wrote something that I felt was her. She was very English in that film. Did you see the film ever? I did not. Uh Uh-huh. It felt right to me. That was the theme I sort of picked to depict her. To this day, as a matter of fact, I still call her Emily instead of Julie, (laughs) which she likes. The lyricist Johnny Mercer. What did you find his personality to be like? There were several of them. Johnny Mercer was, I think, the greatest lyricist in history, honestly. I don't think there was anybody that quite came up to him, as far as my own opinion is concerned. He was a lovely gentleman who was very giving and all, and he became a totally different person when he drank. And unfortunately, he drank quite a bit, but not when he was working. He was a very dedicated worker when he worked. But when he drank, he became abusive. He became totally different from the Johnny Mercer who you always saw and loved. But that was his particular thing. But as a lyricist and a, and a workman, he was just the best, I think. And I've worked with some good lyricists, but I think Johnny was overall the best. In general, do you like collaborating? Well, sure, with a lyricist. I don't like collaborating music-wise, as a rule, but I usually don't have to, because I'm called to write a score or to write an arrangement. So the only collaboration is with a songwriter. 
I've worked with Paul Francis Webster. That was a lovely experience. A very, you know, very good lyricist and a nice guy to work with. And Johnny Mercer was always a nice guy to work with. He was very professional. It was only when he drank. That was only on his off hours did he drink. You arranged the Frank Sinatra album, Ring-a-Ding-Ding. I did indeed. What was your first impression of Mr. Sinatra when you met him? I met him when he was doing a movie. Uh, Bill Miller, his pianist, brought me out to where he was shooting a movie called The Devil at Four O'Clock for Columbia. I think he was out at the Columbia Ranch then. He had just left Capitol and started his own company called Reprise. You know, I came into the uh, came into the room where he was, and he was in between shooting scenes and all, and he was just great. He uh, was very hyped up and enthusiastic about very enthusiastic about the new label he was starting, Reprise, where he was going to give all the artists their own a whole lot of rights that other companies didn't give you, like they could own their own masters and could do what they want and this and that. And he said they were going to be different colored records and that kind of thing. And I was watching him, and he'd look right at you with those blue eyes, and I never saw a pair of eyes like that. They saw everything. I just found him very pleasant, really, regardless of anything you've ever heard and all. I was very impressed with him. He seemed very all together. Was there a memory from the recording of that album, Ring-a-Ding-Ding, that stands out? Oh, yeah. I'll tell you something about him that I've never seen anywhere else ever. Usually, he always rehearsed his songs in private with Bill Miller. So he'd, he'd do all that kind of thing. He'd know the songs beforehand. And usually a singer would come in and you'd be playing it with the band and all they'd be listening to the arrangement and trying to find out what they'd where they'd fit in, what they'd do at a certain place, and sort of sus. You know, all of them like Tony Bennett. That's the way Andy Williams. They'd do. They'd just listen to the arrangement and see how they fitted into it. Sinatra was a different thing altogether. He had already rehearsed the songs with Bill Miller. He had the full band in for the first rehearsal. And I mean full band with the strings, the, the brass, the whole thing, and all the woodwinds, large band. And he says, okay, let's take it from the top. And he taps off a tempo that he thinks would be good for him. He says, let's do the title song first, Ring-a-Ding-Ding. And there's a lot of stuff going on in this arrangement, believe me. If you've heard it, you know. And he listens to it with the whole band. And after that, he didn't sing. He just listened. And he said... It's very good. I think I tapped it off a little slow. It should be a little faster. In the third chorus, I heard a wrong note in the trumpet. There's a wrong chord in the trumpets and the brass. And he named a couple of other things like that. But he heard the whole thing. I mean, this is the third chorus, and he heard it for the first time with the full band. And he picked out different things like that. I've never run into anyone who could do that. Then he'd kick it off again at the tempo he liked, and he'd hear it, and he says, great, next one. And we'd go through them like that. And the next one was like, that's the only time we did Let's Fall in Love. And right on the date, he said, you're familiar with that whole thing, aren't you? Yeah. With the ring and Well, it has a verse on it. I've got a feeling. It's a verse nobody ever heard before. And he did it, and then it goes into, let's 
Paul in love? He says, why don't we, right before, when I end up the verse, why be shy? He says, let's stick a bar rest in there. Leave it nothing. Why be shy? Two, two, three, one, two, three, four. Let's uh, fall in love. He did that right on the date. Boom. In other words, he was always the driving force, and he knew exactly what was going on. I never met anyone that had this ability, even though he didn't read music or any of that. It didn't matter. Buddy Rich didn't read music, for that matter. But Sinatra was just unbelievably talented, and he also conducted. He didn't do any conducting for me, but he did albums where he did that tone poems with color of color for Capitol with different composers. He conducted every one of them, and they found him very easy to follow. Although he didn't read a score or anything, he instinctively knew what should be done, and he was very easy to follow. He was an enormously a talented man. Wow. I've never met anyone with that ability. Incredible. Yeah, he was. He was. He, I loved working with him. Another song you wrote that was recorded by a lot of people, The Shadow of Your Smile. Yeah. Who do you think did the definitive interpretation? Tony Bennett. Yep, that's the one. What Tony did... just ate that song up. He did the best version of it. Yeah. Another song that you wrote, Close Enough for Love, mm -hmm. with Paul Williams. Yeah, wonderful lyricist. What is Paul Williams like to work with? Oh, he's funny. He's an extremely funny guy. And I've, of course, served with him on the uh, ASCAP board for many years. I was on, on the board for, I don't even know how many years, probably right at uh, 34 years, probably. But I had known Paul before that. He was delightful to work with. He was very funny, extremely funny. And he's been a hell of a president of ASCAP. Another pair of lyricists that you've worked with, absolutely legends, Alan and Marilyn Bergman. Oh, yeah. We've written a lot of songs together. And the one song, Where Do You Start? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that one. It's an interesting story. Somebody gave me a lyric. It was by some playwright or other. He said, take a look at all these lyrics. He gave me several of them. And I picked that one out. I don't know why, but that was one of maybe, uh, say, a half a dozen, nine to ten that I'd picked out. And I wrote, I looked at it, and I wrote that song. What would have been the bridge didn't seem like it fit. Or didn't, so I just made up another bridge myself without a lyric. I gave the song to Alan and Marilyn Bergman, never telling them where this song came from. And they wrote almost the exact lyric to it. And it was about a breakup between this guy who wrote the lyric and his wife. And they were, you know, and all the things that go through dissolving a relationship. And they wrote the same damn lyric for me, just through the music. So I said, how the hell did you write this lyric? I said, we heard it in the music. It was, uh, I don't know, you know, I told them nothing. Then after that, I showed them the lyric that I wrote the music to. And it was kept very quiet because it was a playwright who was well known who wrote the lyric. They looked at it and they said, man. They wrote about the same thing this guy wrote about it. <laughs> you know, evidently, I must have captured that in the music. But that's one of those kinds of things that happens to you when you're writing songs. I kind of want to fast forward. This was 1999. 
How do you feel about the Diana Krall album, When I Look in Your Eyes? Well, I loved working with her, and I'd like to have done more with her. Maybe I will in the future. She had never done an orchestra album before, so it was new to her. She'd always only done quartet things with her rhythm section. But it was a good fit. She had to get used to it. But she's an exceptional musician, you know, and, and singer. We welcomed Mr. Sinatra Jr., Frank Sinatra Jr., recently. and he Great said, guy. Yeah, isn't he, though? Beautiful. He said that he felt Diana Krall, he put her at the top of the list of performing and recording artists of today. I think so. She's damn good, I'll tell you that. She's awfully good. You collaborated with her on the Barbara Streisand album. Right. Love is but the she was a producer on that. She didn't play. She wasn't the artist. She was an excellent producer on it. I, I was very impressed with the way she produced that album. She didn't lose her focus, and that's the biggest thing you have to do when you're a producer. It's, you know, it's like being a film director, very much so. I mean, you don't tell the people how to sing or anything, but there are so many things you have to keep in sync, and she was really good at it. She's a natural, and the only playing she did with an occasional solo itself in there but she really impressed me as a producer. She has a good mind. What moments stood out for you when you were doing that project? Love is the answer. Oh, I liked doing The Gentle Rain. That was a fun one to do. Really, the one song that I didn't do that was done by Anthony Wilson was uh, the guitarist, very talented man. Love Dance, that's the one. I think that was the best arrangement. I thought he wrote the best chart on that album. That's the only one he wrote. There's an album that was recorded live at Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola. Oh, yeah. It's called Johnny Mandel, The Man and His Music. Right. Can you tell us your recollections of that evening? Oh, yeah. Well, we did a week there, actually. And, you know, I loved working with the girls. Sherry Miracle was probably one of the great drummers of the world. And it was a lot of fun and sadness, too, because that was when Stanley Kay was dying. And he was the one that started Diva and believed that all girl bands could be just fine. And there was always a prejudice against women. They were allowed to play piano or harp or something, but not not be blowing trombones and things. And he thought that was a, a crock, you know, and did his best. And he was the one that started Diva. God bless Stanley. I knew Stanley for a long time because he was Buddy Rich's drummer which sounds funny, except most drummers hate playing ballads, so Stanley would play the drums for him while he stood out in front of the band. Because there's nothing more nothing more boring than playing a ballad on the drums, <laughs> if you can picture it. On that album, you recorded a version of Suicide is Painless. Yes. I think this was in Mexico, and I heard a pan flute version of that song. Yeah. And I'm curious... What goes through your head when you hear that song, aside from the MASH TV show? What do you think it is about the melody that is so catchy or memorable? That's the word. I don't know. I just thought, I was trying to write a stupid song for a stupid lyric, and that's what I came up with. You know, where I had an odd bar in there right before the chorus, you know, where it sounds, I wanted it to sound amateurish, like the way the lyric went. That's just the way it felt it came. You know, you probably never would have heard the song again if MASH wasn't such a hit, which I also had a great time doing the, the music for. As one of the top composers, who do you respect the most? Oh, gee. 
of today? Of today? Yeah, I can't think of the names all. Names and things like that sometimes elude me, or I can't remember them, but they're all still up there in the brain. And there's a bunch of guys that I really like a lot. In other words, throw some names at me that are uh, writing today. There was one that I wondered if you were going to say, because right. I kind of think that when I think about the best melody writers, I think oh. of Michel Legrand, you, oh, sure. uh-huh. and Burt Baccarat. Those are the yeah. three. Well, thank you. That's nice company. And Charles okay. Fox. And Mancini. Henry Mancini and the late Marvin Hamlish. And, yeah, Marvin, too. And Charlie Fox. Yeah. Yeah, good writers. But you're talking about film scorers now. Hank did everything so well, whatever it was, plus being a just a marvelous guy. All of them are, actually. They're all great guys. There's a guy who did all the, like, here it goes with names again. And the guy who did, like, Romancing the Stone, good example. He did a lot of movies, and he's excellent. For the same producer, he did tons of movies. That's unusual, because usually a producer will switch composers with, with every picture. Yeah, Alvin Silvestri. Al Silvestri, great. Yeah. Great. Okay, give me a couple of other names, I'll tell you. Okay, what do you think of Burt Bacharach? As a film composer or as a, as a songwriter? Yeah, just as a songwriter. Oh, I think he's unique. There's nobody that writes like him. People used to joke about it at first. Lionel Newman used to say his songs sound like the second oboe part. Well, they do to a traditional, uh, tr- traditionally-minded thing, but they're perfect for what they were. I think a lot of Burt Bacharach. What do you think of Michel Legrand? Oh, I think I think he's just a great orchestrator, composer, everything. A lot of singers don't enjoy him because he gets very busy out in back, you know. As an orchestrator and everything else, he's without peer. He's just great. guy who does a lot of things that I'm trying to think of that is a very good composer, does a lot of movies, who's current. Hmm. Can you name me some names? Some names of current composers? Yeah. Well, the yeah. first one that's, that comes to my mind is Hans Zimmer. Oh, he's excellent. Yeah. Not only that, but he came from a record background, too. Yeah, Hans Zimmer's great, and he's good at humor and all that sort of thing, too. Can't fault him. He's great. What makes a good song a good song? Well, first of all, you have to remember it. Second of all, it depends on what the song is written for, of course. If it sticks in your head, even if it's a bad song, there's something going for it. It's That's a hard one to answer, really, because you get a lot of songs that'll stick in your head, but I couldn't call a good song, like How Much Is That Doggy in the Window? <laughs> to answer a lot of your questions, you should pick up a book that just came out recently called The B-Side. The B-Side. Yeah, it's a new book, and I'm trying to think of the name of the guy who wrote it. It's it's excellent because it traces what happened to music after World War II and how bad it got. And this was, you know, you had the, all the great composers writing during up to and during World War II. You had, you know, the Jimmy Van Heusen's, uh, Berlin, Richard Rogers, and all those things. You know, the great American songbook guys. And after that, for some reason, music started deteriorating. And that's when you had the, how much is the doggy in the window and near you and all the crap music in the late 40s and in the 50s and 60s was dreadful for the most part. 
and it really got bad. And at the same time, jazz became jazz faded out from the the consciousness. It was I don't know. Even the show music became much more operatic. The things that Rogers and Hart used to write in the twenties and thirties were more jazz inflected. When Hart died and Hammerstein took over, it became more operatic. He started writing things like Carousel and Oklahoma and those things, and it became almost more operatic in a, operatic in a way. The stuff that was on the air just was dreadful, one thing after another. And it's gradually started to get better with, with some of the good country, and the Beatles turned it around a lot. One thing I had a great pleasure working with was with Paul McCartney recently. Just a great guy to work with. Oh, wow. I did quite a few tracks on that, but then I broke my hip had to go into uh, into the hospital for quite a while. So I had to quit in the, in the middle of it, but he was just a joy to work with. And you're talking about, it, was it the Kisses on the Bottom? Yeah, Kisses on the Bottom, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah I worked on that. Yeah, he was great, but music started getting better, and they also, you know, a lot of those groups started using the, uh, doing revivals of songs from the past and putting their own twist on them. And that got interesting. You should get hold of the B-side. It's brand new. It's out. And I did quite a bit of consulting on it. I will get it. Yeah. By all means, you, it gives you a good picture of what happened to music in the 50s and 60s and 70s. It was pretty bad. And it's gotten back on it. It's come back again with people like Jimmy Webb and people like that. It's just a lot better than it used to be. This question is probably a very hard question, but I have to know, who do you think did the best interpretation of a song you wrote? Which one? Who did the best one, just of all? Who do you think did the best version of a song you wrote? Well, Tony Bennett did the best. Emily and, and Sinatra recorded it three different times with different different people and all. You know, once with Nelson, once with somebody else, not with Gordon, I don't think. But I used to kid, I used to kid Tony about this a lot. I said, when you come and do a song, it's like you lift your leg on the territory and pee <laughs> on it, and nobody's going to be able to do it better than you. And he did a, a better time for love than anyone. He did a better Emily. He did a better Shadow. When he does it. It becomes his record. He just has that particular way of doing the song. I Want to Be Around, a great Johnny Mercer song, same thing. But nobody will cap Tony Bennett. He's a great singer, but he's a stylist like that nobody wants to follow because he puts his he lifts his leg on the territory. Yeah. And there were a lot of great singers. I worked with Andy Williams a lot, and I really admired him. Wonderful. Good guy to work with, too. So when you're performing with the big band... Yeah. Oh, the band I have now, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, my big band. I love doing that. There's not enough places to play. When someone does hear you guys performing, what do you want them to get out of that experience? Oh, I, w I want them to feel, feel very good when they're done hearing us. Happy. It's that kind of thing. Because we swing our asses off. <laughs> and that's what we want to do. It's like what big bands used to be and you aren't, you know, we don't do any oldies or anything like that. We're always trying to, I don't know, I never wanted to have a band and it happened by accident. When um, I was supposed to be doing a, 
a co-leader thing with Jack Sheldon, and Jack didn't show up, and I panicked. I said, where the hell do we have enough music to cover the evening? And I looked through all the music. I said, yeah, we got enough to do that with. So I started doing the show, and he didn't show up, and he was sort of famous for not showing up anyway at times. I discovered I was having the time of my life, and ever since then, I've wanted to have a band. I never wanted to have a band before. Never even thought of it. And there's just less and less places to play. Oh, God, yes. It's uh, Jazz has been on a real downslope. It's going to come back because a lot of people want to dance. And I think jazz started losing its popularity when, when the government during World War II put a penalty tax on dancing, a cabaret tax, and people stopped dancing. And then Norman Grant's bless him and all, you know, all that because the records he made, no one else would make of the great jazz players. But he wanted people to listen and not dance. He didn't like that. And Stan Kenton was the same way. And people started listening. Jazz isn't supposed, it's supposed to be danced to and enjoyed. That's how it first came into being, to have a good time. The more people dance, the more you're going to have big bands. Yeah. What is the best thing about being Johnny Mandel? Oh, being able to shoot my mouth off to guys like you. (laughs) (laughs) No, really. I don't know. I have a life that I enjoy a lot. I still write. Keep doing what I've always done. I don't do movies anymore. They stopped being fun, and I've walked out on my last movie. Not on my last, but I I just decided at 89 that I didn't want to do anymore because it stopped being fun, and most of the guys I loved working with weren't getting the jobs or had died or something. I went back to making records. I worked a lot with Quincy Jones and learned unbelievable amounts from him about recording. That's about it. I love doing what I do. I write for my band now. And if somebody wants me to do do a record with them, like Shirley Horn and people like that, I did. That's one of the best records I made. That first record I made with Shirley, which was, what was that? Not Here's to Life. Here's to Life. Yeah. That's it. Sure. What about that album is, makes it a favorite of yours? I don't know. I did another one with her that I loved doing, too, called You're My Thrill. Very good record. It was just very special, and there was nobody like Shirley. And you produced with her, correct? Right, I did. For anyone who's listening in, or for anyone who's reading this, what would you say to those people, wherever they are in the world? If you're not doing what you love, you're wasting your time. That's my message. That's beautiful. And for my last question, Who is Johnny Mandel? How the hell should I know? That's for (laughs) other people to decide. (laughs) Just a guy who loves doing what he's doing and hopefully isn't wasting his time. I will tell you who I think Johnny Mandel is. Okay. He is absolutely one of the greatest composers who ever lived. Oh, my God. I mean, you know what you're talking about now? Talking about Irving Berlin, Richard Rogers, you're talking about Jimmy Van Heusen, you're talking about the guys. These are the majors. Your melodies are going to be around a long time. Beautiful thank songs. You, thank you. Thank you. And thank you very much for this interview. I've had this dream of interviewing you for years now. Well, I hope I lived up to the dream. I enjoyed it very much. Great. You said, don't call me Mr. Mandel, so I will say, Johnny... Yeah. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Great. Thank you very much. Godspeed. Same to you, man. Bye-bye. Bye now. 
Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. If you enjoy these interviews, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. You can help us by listening on the free Radio Public app. The show can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or Overcast. For more information, visit thepaulleslie.com or follow on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all at The Paul Leslie. The Paul Leslie Hour theme song is performed and composed by Jeff Pike. Outro music is performed and composed by John Goodwin. See you next time on The Paul Leslie Hour.